So this morning we look to uh, Romans chapter 12, verses 14 to 21. And the connection that this passage has is one that is, I believe, central to not only Christian conduct, but Christian sanctification. And in studying this passage, the one thing I want to uh, set before you is that uh, this is largely Paul in many intersecting ways dealing with uh, the outflow of the Beatitudes, I believe. And I believe that that's the case because if you were to read Matthew chapter 5 and Jesus's explanation of how his disciples ought to conduct themselves, well, for one, they're dealing with the same enemy and also they're dealing with the same Christian standard. And so I believe that if you look at Matthew chapter 5 and you begin to look at this passage, uh, then you will see that this is a charter for Jesus's disciples, for those who would be called Christians, for those who follow Christ. And I believe it's also very much connected to all that is said before. So this isn't conduct independent of doctrine, but it is the doctrine that feeds the conduct that the Christian absolutely believes. And I say that because this is also a matter of holiness, and we'll talk about the specifics of that. But this is directly tied to verses 1 in chapter 12, but certainly tied to all that is said before. And I keep making that point because you cannot uh, you know, kind of partition the things that are said in such a way so as to see them as simply independent suggestions or independent uh, expectations. If you believe what Paul has written so far in Romans— then your life will reflect what he's going to write in the future uh, from the vantage point of where we are in our text this morning. So not only in how we deal with those in the body of Christ, but also how we deal with our enemies. And then he goes on into Romans 13, how we deal with the government, uh, which is a huge, uh, a huge thing that's happening in our contemporary age with a lot of confusion. But I believe all this is not only tied to the spiritual service of worship, the holiness uh, the living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, because it certainly is that. But it also goes all the way back to the Beatitudes when Jesus first enters the scene. And he says some of the very same things that we see in Romans chapter 12, verses 14 to 21, especially related to our enemies. Uh, there's three words that come to mind when you look at this passage and you try to think about how to apply it to the time in which you live. And I believe those three words are ruthlessness, coldness, and mercilessness. Because in the time of Christ, you had uh, the peace of Rome, the Pax Romana, whereby the Roman Empire was not as aggressive as it would become during the time of Paul. But the synagogue was certainly as aggressive as it was. And, and, and you know, we see that even traced through the New Testament apostolic age. But you see this ruthlessness, this coldness, this merciless, uh, this merciless uh, act that is always uh, among those who are not affiliated to Christ, uh, always among those who do not belong to Christ. And so the Christians in, in Rome, the Christians in Romans, Paul's audience, they knew this well because they lived in a time uh, during a time in which the most renowned, cunning and ruthless Roman Empire existed. And so they were also faced with this reality of the command from Christ to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow him, uh, which certainly caused believers in that age to have enemies. We talked about it a little bit last week, but it was either for them. Caesar is Lord. 
Caesar is Lord of Lords or Jesus the Christ is Lord of Lords. And so that is what they were confronted with. So who would they live for? Who would they swear total allegiance for? And this was certainly a spiritual uh, thing as much as it was a natural confession that flowed from their lives. So they were either to swear allegiance to Caesar ultimately or to swear allegiance uh, to Jesus Christ himself. And Jesus, he points out in Matthew chapter 10, verses 36, when we talk about what, how shall we conduct ourselves toward our enemies? How should we conduct ourselves toward our enemies? Jesus said a man's enemies would be those of his own household. Man's enemies would be those of his own household. Naturally so, that the gospel itself, and not only the gospel, all the teachings of Christ and all the teachings of the apostles, they draw a line in the sand and they draw a line that partitions uh, right down in the middle of a household. And we've talked about that before, even going through Matthew and other passages. But that is the cost of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. That's the certain cost is that you're not only going to have enemies, but you're going to have the most intimate enemies. And I believe that our passage, uh, as it is explained to us by the Holy Spirit, the divine author through Paul, the human author, as he dictates to Tertius, I believe that what he's dealing with is the intimacy uh, the very intimate nature of our enemies, because they're close enough to not only hate us and despise us, but they're close enough that we have to interact with them in such a way so as to be a blessing to them. So there's not just these distant enemies or I've made enemies because of something I've done, but it is rather that you are an enemy in position uh, because of your confession and faith in Jesus Christ. And that is a very intimate thing. But I would say this. More than everything that we're going to say today, it is not simply the point that we amass enemies. That is no one's goal, because that's what Paul's going to say later on in the passage. Or even to boast in the amount of enemies we have, because quite frankly, your count will always be off. You probably have more enemies than you realize. For Paul, it was that the Christians were to treat their enemies as they came in contact with them different than the world around them. Uh, and I mean that. In this way that the system in which the world puts in place to deal with their enemies, it has to be different with the Christians, however many enemies we have. So while the uh, while both the Jews and Gentiles exiled or even murdered their enemies, because that was the history of Israel as much as it was the history of the Gentiles. Paul wanted the Roman Christians not to settle. And I mean this not to settle for human vengeance. And I know that that's hard. And we're going to talk about that. Because that is a hard thought to have. If we're very honest. Not to settle. It is settling when you take human vengeance. That's settling. In light of the fact that. Uh, of who God is. But he wanted the Roman Christians. Not to settle for human vengeance. The presence of enemies. Is not an excuse to forsake righteousness. The presence of enemies is not an excuse to forsake righteousness. And that is going to be Paul's whole point as we look at this particular text. So then we look at how do we regard those who are set against us? How do we regard those who are set against us? I think that's a fair question for every one of us to ask because every one of us, and I could say this in any true confessing Christian church, every one of us has enemies. Every one of us has enemies. And some of them are unbeknownst to you. Some of them you'll find out that they're enemies. You thought they were friends. And some of them, uh, they are your sworn enemies and they will do all that they can to try to see to your demise. 
So then how do we regard them? How do we not only account for them, but how do we interact with them when we need to interact with them? And I want to introduce you to our text again this morning. In verse 14, Paul starts very plainly. And what you're going to see is that essentially you're treating the body in a certain way and you're also treating your enemies in very similar ways. You're not treating them as brothers and sisters, but you're treating them as far as their needs go, like you would a brother or sister. And I'll explain that to you. Uh, But Paul said to bless those who persecute you. He said, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. This means as furious and as ferocious as our enemies pursue our destruction. We are to bless them, hoping they meet with the perfect holy and righteous one. We pray for their blessing. We desire their blessing and we act in accords with that. And I would say that as we begin even this verse and even as it flows into Romans 13, there is no room. This verse and the entire context leaves no room for imprecations, meaning imprecatory prayers, meaning prayers of cursing, meaning what Uh, The sons of thunder wanted to do toward the enemies that were around them and around Christ, where they wanted to call down curses upon their enemies. There's no room for that. There's no room for that, not only in the Christian life, but there's no room for that toward our enemies. Well, why is that? Because in the church age, it is why I said you have to understand the time in which you live in the church age. We desire everybody's salvation. We know not everyone will be saved. But we desire for everyone to be saved because that is what God wants. And I'll even heighten that even more. That is what God wanted for those who are among us, who are the elect. None of us were friends of God before he saved us. And so you see that very closely. But Paul says to bless those who persecute you. In a sense, those who are running you, actively running you down. They actively put all of their time, because they're pragmatists, their time, money, and resources into destroying you if they can. And if those things don't work, then they use their time in the way of slander to try to see to it that everyone else will pile up against you as well. And Paul knew this both ways. I believe that he, and I don't think there's anything wrong when you have a biblical foundation to speak experientially. And Paul did. And so, but he did not make his experience the standard, but you know that he's speaking from experience. Paul knew this in both ways. He was once an enemy of the Christians, so he was once guilty of the very things that he's now preaching against, and he sought to curse them by causing them to blaspheme. So he wanted to see Christians cursed, and he wanted to see them cursing uh, the Messiah. He wanted them to be arrested and murdered, and he contributed to that at one time as Saul of Tarsus. But what you'll see in the Christian's response toward Paul is what I believe has informed Paul's teaching. I believe Christ himself informed it. But remember what Christ said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? If you look at the Christians, because so many people look at Saul of Tarsus, and I believe that's a good thing to do. But look at the Christians. The Christians never retaliated toward Saul of Tarsus. They never retaliated. Stephen did not retaliate. And here Paul is on the side now, if you look at this great and marvelous salvation, he's on the side now of his once enemies. And he's desiring to win his enemies among the Jews 
to saving faith in the Messiah. So God has now brought him out of the kingdom of darkness and translated him into the kingdom of the beloved son. And in doing so, Paul is saying, well, now you can't curse the Christians and I don't want to curse the Jews. In fact, as we begin this major section, Paul starts out with saying, if it were possible, I wish I could curse myself in order that these uh, Jews would be saved. But it is not possible. So Paul said even now what is possible is for him to proclaim the gospel to Jews and Gentiles and want for their salvation. And then in verse 15, Paul writes, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Just as there is an intimacy to the persecution and to the enemies, everything about the Christian life is very intimate. It is very intense. And when you go through things, you are like an exposed nerve. I mean, you'll in fact, be persecuted and people will hurt you and people will slander you and lie about you and treat you poorly. And then the Christians will come along and love you and care for you and pray for you. It is all a very intimate thing, this Christian walk. And so Paul called upon the Christians in Rome to become intimately acquainted with their brothers and sisters in the faith during persecution. So their intimacy together and by intimacy, I simply mean fellowship, their fellowship together became more acquainted uh, in such a way that you see where he says, I'm now partaking in the things that calls for rejoicing in your life, and I'm weeping for those things that cause you to weep in your life. And Paul says, rejoice with those who weep. I'm sorry, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. And so that is the standard, I believe, of the Christian walk. It is to bless and in blessing, he is now explaining what that blessing looks like. He's, he's not simply saying that we absorb everyone's troubles. He's not saying we absorb everyone's troubles so as to find ourselves ensnared. Because there's warnings all throughout passage, uh, passages in Scripture, especially in the New Testament, with not exposing yourself to certain things that would cause you to be ensnared uh, by others. But instead, we are to identify with our brothers and sisters who weep as a result of not only life's troubles, but the troubles that the world system throws at the Christian. And then we're also to rejoice in those areas where the Christian experiences triumph and the Christian experiences those things that are a joy to them in the faith. Uh, and in all that, we are now together walking in the middle of that, in the face of persecution. Persecution doesn't leave. In fact, Paul's going to come right back to it at some point soon, but it doesn't leave. And I say this because we have to look at all of what's said in the larger context to where Paul is weeping over the lost house of Israel. So he's saying all of us are weeping and we should be weeping at that point. He's not just talking about individual weeping, but he's talking about rejoicing over the things of God. And he's talking about weeping with those who weep over the things of God. And I say that because there's, you know, there's things that people may, uh, with regard to the cares of this world, they may be rejoicing over that you and I cannot rejoice. There may be things that people of this world are weeping over and you and I have no cause for weeping. So he's not saying it as a general statement. He's saying you ought to be about the things that are tied to God's divine will. And in that we rejoice together and in that we weep together. And so I would say it's tied to everything we have learned so far about Gentile and Israel salvation. 
So Paul says we have to be so like-minded in that, that we are rejoicing in those things, and yet we're weeping just as the world strikes against God, uh, persecutes us. We're weeping over them, and we're weeping over those things that are an effect of that. We look to verse 16. It says, be of the same mind toward one another. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Paul here is also aiming to eliminate division in the body of Christ. He wants to eliminate division in the body of Christ. For this, for this ties directly to our previous context in the chapter. What Paul is not saying is that we are in fellowship with our enemies. He's not saying that. He's saying in the face of your enemies, you must do these things together. And when you present before your enemies, you're trying to bless your enemies. But in all that, he's saying this is your association with one another. This is the manner in which you present yourselves as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship in verse 1. For this ties to our previous context in the chapter when he says to practice the gifts in the most excellent way toward one another. To practice the gifts in the most excellent way toward one another. This is not, prevent, uh, this is not preventing division by tolerating evil. It's not what Paul is saying. He's not saying somehow in this we must prevent division by tolerating evil. Let's just all get along. Or these phrases, these catchphrases that cause so much division in the church such as good men disagree and things that are said in that way. Uh, first of all, no one is supremely and eternally good apart from Christ. And if we disagree, we have to walk together until we come to an agreement in the mind. And then we are of the same mind. The Bible everywhere says that we have to achieve that like-mindedness. That's the goal. But in all this, Paul is aiming to eliminate anything that would not uh, that would not agree with that. Paul has already said in our text, the text that's tied to this, it's why I'm saying he's not saying let's prevent division by tolerating evil. Let's just tolerate our enemies and placate them and keep them around just for the sake of keeping them around. No, Paul has already said to hate what is evil. And cling to what is good. He says that in verse 9. That our love is to be without hypocrisy. But if our love is to be without hypocrisy, there will be no partiality involved with it at all. We will not only love those who can do something for us on our behalf. We will love those who hate us. And who can do nothing for us and expect to do nothing for us except to bring us down. And so Paul goes through this practical way in which those things are worked out as we deal with one another who are brothers and sisters in fellowship and those who are enemies of the cross and then and our enemies. This kind of love, this kind of blessing, listen to this, this kind of love, this blessing, this forbearance, this forbearance toward one another is, fo- is founded in like-mindedness. It's founded in like-mindedness. Paul even launches, when he begins Ephesians chapter 4, he starts in that same position. It all begins with the, the singularity of confession, of conviction, and of fellowship around all that is taught in Scripture. That is where it all begins. And if you want to trace it back just a little further, it begins with the new birth. It begins with the new birth. 
But this forbearance is founded in like-mindedness and all that he has already taught and all that he has already written in this particular epistle. So he's not laying aside portions of this letter and then saying, here's how you should act. He's saying, in connection to everything that I've taught so far, here is how you should conduct yourself toward those who are in the body of Christ and toward your enemies. When he says, be of the same mind toward one another, he means to be in agreement. This is the essential meaning of not only the word, but in its context. He means for us to be in agreement over the word of truth and every single one of its features. So we must be in agreement over the word of truth and every single one of its features. He does not simply call for people to find agreement and harmony in their social station in life. That's not what he's saying. It certainly includes that, but that's not the point. He says, be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind. You see how it starts with self and then it works itself out toward others. But associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. And so what Paul is dealing with is that there's the sense in which we have to be at peace with one another. We're at peace with one another. And I believe that the partiality that you see uh, in James that has worked itself out, uh, I believe that the Pharisees were huge on it. Every world system does it. And I believe that you see it certainly in the modern evangelical way of doing things. I believe that that starts with these partitions in the mind. And that's why Paul says how one thinks about himself is certainly how one will treat one another. And so there are people who they think much of themselves, too much of themselves, to the point where everyone else is either in the way or just a means to an end. And so Paul eliminates that kind of thinking. He eliminates that kind of thinking with what he writes, that we are to be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. He doesn't say you can think what you want as long as you act accordingly. He doesn't say you can act how you want. He says that you have to be of the same mind toward one another. I have to think about you in the way that the Bible commands me to, and then I'll act uh, toward you in that way. I have to think about myself in the way that the Bible commands me to. I have to be winning the war in my thought life and spiritual war before I can begin to launch out and uh, do the things that Paul is commanding to do. One has to have the power of the Holy Spirit renewing the mind and the word of God. There are people who are operating under a banner of Christianity and they do not operate on the basis of renewing their mind. And it's why they treat everyone the way they do. It's why they're so disrespectful. They're so cold. They're so callous, self-serving, self-ambitious. They have no connection to actually doing what the Bible says because the Bible's not informing how they treat others around them. But yet here, Paul is saying that we have to be of the same mind toward one another. Where is he getting that from? Well, he's getting that from everything from Romans 1 all the way to this point. In Romans 12, that he was showing you between Jews and Gentiles, here's the standard of their salvation. Oh, and by the way, Gentiles, you cannot be arrogant toward the Jews because you are saved by grace through faith. You cannot uh, replace them. You cannot desire that they be cursed. You have to desire their salvation. And the Jews, the Jews have to humble themselves and they have to come to the reality of the cross. And he's saying in all of this and in all the implications of that, our sanctification 
the fact that we've been justified, that we're going to see Christ, and that we had no hand in it except the gift of faith given to us to believe, not of our own selves. He's saying in all that, we can now think along the same lines. We can now act toward one another in the same way. But he's not simply calling people to find agreement and harmony in their political affiliation, their hobbies, their social station. But rather, if you are in agreement in the truth of God's word and all that is taught here, your station in life will not matter. The way I treat you based on where you are will not matter. It won't matter because if you and I agree on what the word of God teaches and we're walking in that and we're walking through that together, then then where you are in life the only reason it will matter is because I get to rejoice with you in what you're rejoicing in. And I get to weep with you in those things that you're weeping in. And I get to serve you in the most excellent way as you see how Paul has already laid out. Here is how the gifts ought to function among you. And so you see that. There ought to be peace with one another. There ought to be peace. You can bless and love one another without the partiality or the desire for cursing and revenge towards your enemies. I'm going to say that again. You can be at peace with one another. You can bless and love one another without partiality or the desire for cursing and revenge towards your enemies. The sins that Paul wants the Romans to avoid are those which start in the mind. And at that point, you're probably thinking, well, don't they all? Yes, they all do. All the sins begin there. And I say that is why Jesus says what he says in the Beatitudes. This is why Jesus begins to deal with anger, likening it, likening it to murder and all the other things that he talks about there. But he already identified and emphasized these sins of arrogance and pride against God and fellow man. And you know pride when you see it, and you know arrogance when you see it. Sure, people try to make excuses for it and justify it, but you know when it's there. You know when one is acting in arrogance and pride against God and fellow man. But Paul says not to be high-minded, not to have such an elevated view of yourself that you cannot associate with the humble, with the meek, because that's what's in play. He's not simply talking about those who are of a lower financial station. James deals with that a little bit more. What Paul is saying in the way in which he uses this term, uh, he's dealing with one who has meekness, humility. And I believe that that meekness and humility is as a result of everything that has been uh, taught and the, the way that that person is presenting themselves as holy before God. It is the humble and the meek. And I'll tell you, those who are high-minded do not associate with the humble. They associate with others who will either worship them or others who are high-minded. Because the goal is to simply find yes-men and yes-women who agree. Simply to surround yourself with people who agree with everything you're saying. They just agree with you. They won't challenge anything. That is not what Paul is saying. He's saying you should associate with the humble. Well, why? The humble are nearest to the truth of God's word. The humble will open up the word of God and say, well, have you considered this? Well, have you thought about this in light of what God's going to do? Have you thought about this in light of Jesus' return? That is the humble. And Paul says you have to associate, you have to associate with the humble. But if you're not humble, if you're arrogant and you're prideful, 
and you have this high mindedness, you have no use for the humble. You have no use. The humble and the meek, they're your enemies. They're your enemies if you're high minded and prideful. You have to associate, he says, you have to associate with those who are not among the conceited, because that's what the word means when you look at this high mindedness. When he says, do not be haughty in mind. Those who are conceited, arrogant, self-ambitious, and I would add to that at the expense of others. Paul says you don't associate with them. They're already high on the totem pole. They're already high not only in their own estimation, but that sin is a virtue in the world system. And that's what James is getting at when he talks about partiality. That sin is a virtue and those people are elevated not only in their minds, and if they're not elevated in their station, they soon will be. Because they'll find systems that elevate them in that way. But Paul says you ought to be found among the humble, the meek. Paul says to associate with the humble, the lowly. Reminds me of uh, reminds me of the tax collector and the Pharisee. You ought to associate with the humble, the lowly. Those who may not be on the path towards your temporal upward mobility. But they are before the face of God. And so if they're before the face of God, they are for your eternal upward mobility. And so you're with them. You find your company among them. They are not your enemies. They are your friends because they are friends of God. They are your brothers and sisters. Again, he's not just talking about economic or political status. Paul is beyond that here. Because, again, if we go back to the original portion of this text, he's dealing with how do Christians present themselves as a living and holy sacrifice? How do they offer to God an acceptable sacrifice, which is our spiritual service of worship? Therefore, how do we worship God together? That is essentially what Paul is after. So he's speaking on spiritual terms. He's not simply setting before us natural things. They are his. We are to associate with those who are his. James talks about this, as I mentioned, in contrast to positioning the rich in fellowship to the place of honor on the basis of partiality alone against the poor. He talks about that. But that's just a working out of pride as it relates to economic status. It's partiality as it works itself out to materialism. And Jesus then preached this among the disciples. He said the same things that Paul is saying. Well, why? Because Paul got it from Christ. Jesus preached among his disciples to avoid the Pharisees. Why? Because they were lovers of money. It's not because they possessed money. It's because they were lovers of money. People were simply an instrument to to use and manipulate for the goal of attaining more money. It is also written to keep our lives free from the love of money. Well, why? Because of all the arrogance and the pride it brings. And the effects of that are what we see in this text. But he says to associate with the lowly. Associate with the lowly. That doesn't mean associate with the economically poor for the purpose of them being economically poor. Because what then happens is another form of exploitation. He doesn't just say that, to be visibly found among the poor. That's not what he's saying. He's saying associate with the humble, 
associate with the meek. Whatever their station in life, that station doesn't drive their identity. It's that they are a Christian. They love Christ. They honor him. They belong to him. And therefore, they are meek at heart, whether they have much or whether they have little. You can learn a lot because I want you to, as we all do and as we all should, I want you to begin to take these things on biblical principle and you begin to measure what's in front of you. That's that's the goal of any kind of setting where you're opening up the word of God and trying to learn what the Lord is saying and what he would have us do. But you can learn a lot on biblical principle about a man and his friends. You can learn a lot about a man and his friends. And we live in a time where people want to excuse associations. But you can learn a lot about a man and his friends who a person keeps company with. And you may make, at times, assumptions one way or the other. You see someone with someone, and you may think they're friends when they're really not friends. There's enemies who will try to uh, make it appear to the masses that they're friends of yours in order to cause distraction. It's a form of spiritual warfare. I'm not talking about that. Because our job in that is to be very clear if the person is a friend or if they're an enemy who needs to be saved. But I would say our society, especially in the religious realm, they make apology for those who cannot choose their friends well. So those are the most mature amongst evangelical leaders. The most mature are the men who cannot choose their friends well. They appear so nice, so meek, so humble, and their friends are assassins. I'm talking about so many of them. And society and the religious contingency says, well, you know, that's not their fault. We can't account for these things. Nobody's perfect. But I believe that what Paul is saying is you can see on the basis of who a man keeps in his company, you can see how he is either worshiping God in his spiritual service or how he is neglecting worship of God in his spiritual service in the company he keeps. Well, because why? Why am I saying that? Well, because to keep poor company is to flex and to show your pride. It's to be wise in your own estimation. To associate with the high-minded as a normative principle is to be one who is high-minded yourself. To only keep company with those who attack Christ is to be in company and in league with those who attack Christ. Now we're speaking Old Testament principles. We're speaking Psalm 1. And so in this, you can see, you can learn a lot from people in the company they keep. You can draw some conclusions. But I'll tell you, if one is always in position to where everyone around them, even themselves, are only prideful, pride is a normative thing among them, and that's what they do, and that's who they are, and that's how they operate, such persons are always on some level an enemy to the righteous. They're always on some level an enemy to the righteous. And this is who Paul is writing to. He's writing to the Roman Christians who are finding enemies among the empire and enemies among the Judaizers. And the kind of the the last broke down remnants of the Pharisees who will move into the Judaizers. But they all find their association on the standard of pride, hubris and high mindedness. They are haughty in mind about themselves. And so the company they keep, they only welcome those who think the same way. That's what Paul is saying. And that starts in the mind. If your friends are never the people who open up the word of God 
and can explain what the word says, how to apply it, how to live by it. We're praying for one another where we stumble and fall. We confess our sins before the Lord and make sure that no remaining offense stands between us and we're walking in the truth. Well, then our friends are among the lowly, the meek, the humble. You can earn a million dollars and be lowly, meek and humble. You can have nothing and be lowly, meek and humble if you are in Christ. So Paul is not simply going to economic status. Unfortunately, where there is pride and people collect company with those who are high minded, you typically only find where they are of a certain societal persuasion. And so they only welcome that. And that is what James deals with. James deals with the effect of what Paul is saying. He deals with the effect of it. And James goes right to it when he deals with it. But they're always on some level. I want to help you understand this. And this is Paul identifies things so that he can identify the remedy. And he's done that all through Romans. They're always on some level an enemy of the righteous. Always on some level. But Paul says the estimation that you must have for yourself is not the arrogance of measuring yourself by the world's standard of wisdom. The estimation that you must have for yourself is not the arrogance. Because it begins with arrogance when you place yourself in a high-minded system and attest to whether you're achieving the temporal result that that system would bestow upon you. The estimation you must have for yourself is not the arrogance of measuring yourself by the world's standard of wisdom, but instead by the redemptive mercies of God. Because you remember when Paul called us to these things, he said, by the mercies of God, by the mercies of God. That statement alone stops us in our tracks from thinking that we earn something that is of a greater status than anyone around us. By the mercies of God. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, verse one, by the mercies of God, not to the best of your ability, not one group will be better than the rest. Not will I have 50 years in ministry. You have 10. My church has 2000 congregants. Yours has five. None of that matters. He says, by the mercies of God. Oh, well, if I'm saved by the mercies of God, then now we all stand on equal plane. And that is how we proceed forward by the mercies of God. Because what use is it to be wicked among the 20,000 than it is to be righteous among the five? What use is it in the fellowship? He says by the mercies of God, that levels the plane for all of us in sanctification as we move upward in our sanctification. And so you can see this. He says by the redemptive mercies of God. And that is how we measure what it is we're trying to achieve on God's behalf. And it's never to be arrogant toward anyone because that statement stops pride by the mercies of God means undeserving the undeserving nature of divine grace. It's by the undeserving nature of divine grace that you do what you do. It's not by achievement, human achievement. Then we go to the verse 17, go to verse 17 after he says, do not be do not be. Wise in your own estimation. He says, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. It's not just this backroom integrity that you're called to. 
but it is out in front using discernment, the wisdom of God's word to as best as you're able to come to a place of integrity as it affects everyone in the sight of everyone. If you are to render blessing to your enemies, if you are to render blessing to everyone, you're certainly not to pay back anyone evil for evil. You're not to pay back evil for evil. Paul eliminates what I believe, and he eliminates it here, he eliminates what I like to call a side hustle. It's a side hustle among many so-called Christians. Paul eliminates it. Because listen, out of their mouths, and even from up here as they stand before these people, they profess love. And they teach love. And they teach this doctrinal fidelity and this fear of the Lord. And they use great swelling hymns at times and things in which they say and they can quote the latest and greatest evangelical authors they may even quote a little bit of scripture but we see less than that less and less of that even today nobody's really quoting scripture anymore but listen in their hearts what then proceeds out of their mouths and in the interactions they have with people in the sight of all men is bitterness and cursing toward their enemies they are bitter and they curse their enemies and most of their enemies are found among people who are trying to call them to account on some biblical standard. Or whoever they choose for their enemies that day. What they do is they're calling down curses against their foes. And the reason I say it's a side hustle is because on one end they're preaching what the word of God says. But when it's time to do it, it's more lucrative to begin to assault and rain down and crush your enemies and maintain your status of high-minded acclaim. But what Paul is saying is there's an integrity to this. There's an integrity to this. And listen, you're probably thinking, who is he talking? I'm talking about all of it. I'm talking about all of it. All of it that is not the true Christian church. All of it that is not the true confessing and professing Christian church that has for it its charter, the Bible itself, and comes to this text and tries to be as apostolic, as Christian, as biblical, as Christ-like as possible. That is what I'm looking at. That is what I'm aspiring to, and that is what we're aspiring to. So I'm talking about all of it. But he says to respect what is right. It's not only to come to a judgment, but it is to act in accordance with that judgment. And listen, it's not only to come to a subjective judgment. This is objective I'm getting in line with what is deemed right in the sight of everybody. I don't go, well, all right, this will work for this, but I know this is the biblical thing to do, but here I'm going to do this before everybody. It's not twisting verses to make sure that it appears to be right because that's the devil's playground. It is actually respecting what is right in the sight of all men. That means even if the people in my company because I've amassed them, right? If I'm in high mindedness, I need to repent of that. But the people in my company, they may abandon me. They may become my enemies if I start to do this. If I start to respect what is right in the sight of all men. If I start to say, we're not going to attack this person and this person and this person. We're not going to attack people who are doing evil to us. We're not going to attack them. And I'll tell you why later on in the text momentarily. We don't have to attack them. And I believe that so many on this point and on the earlier point 
and I'll, I'll say this again in Romans 13, people in these two chapters are walking away from any semblance of Christian faith. Well, why? Because we live in a time of coldness and ruthlessness, and people want to appear strong before their enemies by prevailing over their enemies in speech, rendering evil verbally toward them, and also in actions. And so at this point, many say Christianity is just not for me. Now, they may still dress up and play the game, but they act completely against this. They say it's not for me. I want to pay back evil for evil. I want to shake my fist at the government and stick my finger in the eye of the government. I want to do those things. So I'm going to close this book and I'll just invent my own Christianity that allows me to do those things. But Paul says, no, follow the old paths. What we're talking about are the old paths. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. It's never okay. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. That's always okay. And look at what he says it achieves. If possible, so far as it depends on you, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Listen to this. Only the prophets of old were sanctioned to call down the curses against their foes during the time of the Old Testament. That's why I say the chronology, the time in which we find ourselves in the Bible, it matters at every point. We talked about it concerning Israel. We talked about it concerning the Gospels. We talk about it concerning spiritual gifts. Now we come to it in this area of do I bless my enemies or do I curse them? Can I curse them sometimes? Can I curse them every election year? What do I do? Well, Paul says, no, it's never okay. Never. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. And anyone means anyone. It means everyone you could possibly think of. Yes, that person you may be thinking of, even them you cannot curse. You cannot curse them. The Old Old Testament prophets, they were certainly sanctioned to do so. I'm going to explain why. But this subsided after the life of David. They were sanctioned to do so because you had the establishment of God's theocracy, his kingdom. And you had the Old Testament covenants are moving in that direction, that they had to curse openly their enemies who were set against God. They had to curse their enemies. And you see this through the prophets that they begin to curse. It is why the disciples become quite confused. And why can't we do it now? Well, the answer is we're moving toward a new covenant, a new covenant where that's not welcome, a new covenant of mercy, The proclamation of salvation toward our enemies, their call for surrender. And so it is a matter of time. It subsides after the life of David, as you see David's life coming to an end. And as you see the latter prophets, the the minor prophets and the major prophets, you see the latter prophets ministries coming to a close. You also see the end of cursing your enemies. In fact, as the Old Testament closes, Malachi says, you know what? There's blessing coming. There's blessing coming to God's enemies. And it's going to come in the form of the Old Testament prophet, John the Baptist, who will point to the New Testament prophet, priest, and king, Jesus the Christ. We do not repay evil for evil because what we have moved toward, I'm just marching you through the chronology. As the Old Testament closes, we're moving toward the Beatitudes. We're moving toward the New Covenant Charter. 
We do not repay evil for evil. I'm going to tell you why, but we do not repay. I'm not always saying it's easy. I'm not always saying you you have you have or we all have succeeded in this point where we fail. We repent. But I'm saying that it is never the case. Paul wrote instead to live at peace with all men. And that peace, again, it's not a standard that deviates from sound doctrine. It's not a standard that tolerates evil. He already said to hate evil, cling to what is good. The caveat that he makes is one I want you to pay very close attention to. He says, if possible, that's the first caveat, if possible, which means at times it won't be possible. But if it's possible, as much as you can control that situation or those situations, and by control, I obviously mean under divine guidance by God's word and by the spirit indwelling you. So far as it depends on you, which means I don't throw gas on the fire, which means I don't heighten it, which means I don't instigate things. I don't let things reach a feverish pitch. But listen, he says, so far as it depends on you, because you're who you're responsible for. You're not responsible for your enemies. We all have to stand before God as individuals. So far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men, be at peace with all men. So Paul writes to be at peace with all men, to live at peace with all men. It is to live at peace with all men if it is possible with us, if it is possible. And listen, our enemies may not make it possible. They may not make it possible, but we cannot control what they do. That is what Paul is saying. It must be possible with us. Dear brothers, I've always said to me, you must always, even in light of offenses, you must always remain reconcilable. Now, if you're giving your enemies here the terms of reconciliation, if it involves slander, then, hey, you have to go to the people you slandered. And you have to repent. You have to go tell them, hey, I lied. I, I said what wasn't true. That is the standard of reconciliation. You'll always have my forgiveness. But if you want the reconciliation, here is what it is. Now, if you don't do that, I'm still going to live at peace with you. I'm not going to I'm not going to wage the same war you're waging. I'm going to pray for your salvation. I will want for your salvation. But if it depends on me so far as it does, I'm going to be at peace with all men, I'm going to be at peace with all men. It must always be possible with us. It must all for the Christian. It must always be possible. And it's funny because even in studying this, I, you know, I was talking about even how some messages, all of them ought to convict you, too. But they all convict you and myself, I hope, because it's the spirit's work. But I'm sure as you're thinking about this, there are people you're thinking about. Yes, even them. Yes, even them. I think about that. It must be possible with me to live at peace with them. And I'm not saying you're going out of your way to be a doormat. We'll talk about that. I'm saying you must make it your objective to be at peace. I'm not heightening the enmity. I'm not contributing to it. I'm not responsible for it. And I'm always in a reconcilable position. And the reconciliation I want to see first is them and God. Because if, if they're right with God, they'll be right with me. That's what matters the most. But Paul essentially writes in 19. Look at this. He goes right to it. Never take your own revenge. And listen to the affection. Never take your own revenge, beloved. Never. 
Never pay back evil for evil. Never take your own revenge. But leave room for the wrath of God. Leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Paul wrote, there is no place for human wrath. There is no place among Christians for human wrath. And let me tell you, there's no place toward our enemies for human wrath. I think we have to let that sit for a little bit because the time in which we live, I mean, these, this is a sticking point in confessing Christianity where people are going, yeah, I want to go find a place that will allow me to exercise my human wrath. They're calling it rights, but they're human wrath, their own sense of obligation. It doesn't mean you go out of your way for people to stick it to you. But it means I'm not actively seeking your destruction. I'm not actively trying to impose myself in such a way that I bring down vengeance upon you. I'm praying for you. I'm hoping for the day that you come to see the terms of not only what you've done. And it really isn't about me. It's what you've done before God. Because in persecuting the Christians and rendering evil toward the Christians, you're doing those things toward him. It's toward him. It's not toward me. So Paul wrote, there's no place for this. We ought, not, we ought not to give a place for this wrath among our enemies, and it does not have a place. And I'm not saying you don't have enemies, and I'm not saying compromise in the presence of your enemies. Because the Bible talks about the wisdom of how to move about in situations so that your enemies don't gain a foothold. It's not to openly, without provocation, lend your neck to the sword and then boast about lending your neck to the sword. It's not to fight your enemies at every point and justify that fight on the basis of some human subjective standard. But what it means is this, and this is what Jesus was teaching where I believe many started to walk away from him in the course of his ministry when he said what he said uh, in the Beatitudes. You can see that as it plays out in the Gospels. We do not avenge ourselves. Why? Not because our enemies have won. It's not because our enemies have won. If you think about that, you get a sense of, ah, okay, now that makes sense. Because it's not that I'm telling you don't fight because, you know, the enemies, they're too powerful. It's too many of them. No, it's not because they've won. It is because vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. I will repay. It's because if they continue, they ultimately will lose. It is God alone who will avenge us. And doesn't he know how to do it perfectly? He knows how to avenge you in ways you haven't thought of. He knows how to take up your cause. And in fact, you may be thinking of situations where something has played out and you're going, man, I would have never have thought that that would have been the outcome. I know in discernment that if a person does X, Y, and Z, this will happen. But I never would have thought that God would have done this, this, and this on my behalf. Because it is he alone that will avenge us. I don't think many people trust this anymore. I don't think they, they trust this anymore. He will exact revenge in the perfect and just way. His revenge will be perfect and it will be just. And there's that word again. It will be intimate. He is looking at your enemies. He's looking at your enemies, your enemies, my enemies, all of our enemies. And he's looking at the people who have done the things they've done, not just in a vacuum. God knows us better than we know ourselves. 
And he's looking at how to avenge us. He's looking at how to dispense his wrath if they do not repent on the basis of his gospel. He sees you and he sees your enemies. And he will not fail in this area. He will not fail. He has a 100% execution rate in this area and in all areas. But what you want now is you want their repentance. He will avenge you. If they persist, he will avenge you. He will bring his wrath upon them. Now, you must hold people to account. You must testify against wickedness. You must say, well, here, you sinned here. None of that is thrown out of the window. But it doesn't mean that you say, now, I'm going to execute the judgment. I'm not only going to present the case, I'm going to execute the judgment in the way I say, God, I got this. You don't know how to handle this person. I'll handle them. No, it's that you're presenting what is true. It's almost like the prophets of old. It's almost like the ministers that you see in the New Testament. It's almost like their walk where they're presenting the case and they expect God to execute the judgment in his timing. They're just faithful. They're patient. They rebuke. They exhort. It's all on suffering. But he sees you and he sees your enemies. He'll avenge you. He'll bring his wrath upon them. You want their repentance. That is the best case scenario. But if they do not respond, then God will deal with them. God will deal with them. And there will be a time where you're going to want that too at the second coming of Christ. You're going to want his wrath. You're not only going to long for it, you're going to be with him when he executes it. And then you'll praise him for that. You'll worship him. But we're not there yet. We're not there yet. It's coming. One day the schemes will end. One day the schemes of your enemies, they will end. So you have to pray that the schemes are thwarted in such a way that they repent. You have to pray that the Lord changes the heart of your enemies. We can find solace in this thought that eventually we will be avenged. Eventually. And one day the schemes will end. They will have to stand before him. And listen, we all have to stand before him. So we must also not find ourselves on the other side of any of this. Verse 20. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him drink. For in doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. You will heap burning coals on his head. Paul says, if you find your enemy. Not just your friend, but your enemy in need of simple provisions such as food or drink. Not simply to pray for them. James talks about the folly of just saying you'll pray, tilting your head, thinking you have a word of advice. We see in Job where that happens. But it's acting on their behalf in concert with what they need. Not withholding. Simple provisions. But to provide. To feed them if they are hungry. To give them a drink if they are thirsty. Paul says these acts will bring shame upon your enemy. Now, you don't do these things with the motive to bring shame upon your enemies, because that would be then taking vengeance. But in acting in concert with God's will towards your enemies in this area, you will be bringing shame upon them because the same mouth they're using to utter slander, you're filling with the provisions that they need to maintain their stature. You're blessing them. You're giving them what they need. Out of their mouth, they're cursing you. And you're going, well, you're hungry here. I want to feed you. I want to give you a drink. You're taking care of their station. Your motive is to bless them. 
That's your motive. But the effect will be you'll bring shame upon them. You'll bring shame upon them. The act will bring shame. When you are good to your enemies, it brings shame because they have no ground to stand in their persecutions and accusations. And sometimes being good to your enemies is just being quiet in their presence and praying for them. It brings shame because they have no grounds. I know this is hard. I know it's hard because the world is growing colder moment by moment. And I know people are flashing into your mind. But this is what God requires. He doesn't say to force friendship. He doesn't say to fellowship on some other standard. He's not calling you to fellowship with your enemies. He's not calling you to be a doormat. Because meekness is strength under uh, strength and power under control. He says to forgo cursing and vengeance. Forgo cursing and vengeance. Why? Because that disturbs your peace. If you're constantly trying to do something the Bible hasn't sanctioned toward people whom God hasn't sanctioned it for, that will disturb your peace. He said forgo cursing and vengeance. And in its place, bless Bless your enemy, especially if your enemy comes across need to bless them. This is not the way of the world. This is not the way of the world. It is not the way of the self-righteous. It is the way of Christ. It is the way of Christ. And in this, we see how Christ has dealt with us whom he has saved. That's where Paul is going. This is how Christ dealt with us. We were cursing him. We were persecuting him. We were lying against him. We were living uh, in open, flagrant violation of what he commands. And God provided our natural and most importantly, our spiritual need. Lastly, we end with this. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This actually will tie to our next context. The true Christian is all that stands in the way from prevailing evil having its way. The true Christian is... he's. We're the only ones that stand in the way from prevailing evil having its way. The, the, the true church. Where everyone devours one another. Because that's what's happening. True Christians are the only ones left to purposefully pursue eternal good. And not let evil have its way. And not let evil run its course. That is a sobering thought, but we are called to this. So next time we'll look at how do we respond to government. I recognize the evangelical world has gone off course and is trying to deal with this in so many pragmatic ways and probably a little frustrated we're getting to this two years after it's a sticking point. But we here do consecutive exposition and we honor God that way. This is where the text has brought us and it's brought us here in September of 2022. So we're going to deal with it. We'll look at how are we to respond to government. We're not going to look at it. We're actually going to look at not how we feel we should respond, but what does the word of God certainly say about our response? And I pray that will be a blessing to you. Let's pray.